Turn to Acts chapter, where are we in? We're in Acts chapter 8 here. So Acts chapter 8, turn your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to follow along. And so uh, we're going to have ushers come and grab some Bibles if they see some hands go up. And if they do, come and read along. This is on purpose. So anyone, don't feel weird. We do this every week. If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. They're free, right? Um, if you don't own a Bible, you do now. This is our free gift to you. Please keep this one, read it, rejoice in it, and the whole deal. And turn to Acts chapter 8. We'll be starting in verse 3. Okay. If you haven't been with us, or if you're just jumping in, uh, in the book of Acts, we're almost, we're about halfway through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is essentially a story. It's a narrative. It is uh, the Apostle Luke telling us, hey, guess what, guys? Um, here's what happened after Jesus rose to heaven, right? So after Jesus died and then rose from the grave, he ascends to heaven, but he gives a mission to a group of people we know as the church and says, you're going to take this story, you're going to take this gospel, you're going to take who I am, what I did, all of my teachings, commandments, and I need you to bring them to the world, and then we've seen over and over and over how this has happened, right? How the early church has answered the call, and they've seen this explosion of faith across the entire region. Now, Acts 1.8, right in the very first chapter of our book, it says that this gospel, that Jesus wants us to see this gospel go from Jerusalem, their immediate context, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Today, we get to see part three fulfilled, Right? So what Jesus said, all the way back in Acts chapter 1, hey, this is what I want you to do. The church is doing a good job because we're hitting Acts, or sorry, we're hitting Acts chapter 8 and they've gotten to Samaria, or they're going to get to Samaria. So we see God's work and his mission is actually continuing to go. And if, if you're not kind of checking in yet, the ends of the earth thing, that's us. Like We are recipients of the fact that this gospel did not stay in one region, but continued to expand. So the work that we look at today is imperative. Because had the apostles, had the early church not lived and abided by them, I don't know if you and I are here. Like maybe we're here, but probably at least significantly for a different purpose than to worship the gospel and the one who has brought the gospel, Jesus. So today, as I make this imploration for us to listen, I want you guys to pay attention because we've looked at a lot of different texts over the last you know, few months in this book, and most of them have talked about, hey, we need to, uh, we need to go out and serve. The church needs to be on mission, right? We need to engage. We need to go out. And that, that is still certainly true in this text as well. But we get kind of this reprieve moment where today we're mostly going to focus on our hearts. And we're mostly going to focus on the people here who love Jesus and say they love Jesus. And then we're also then going to see that the byproduct of loving Jesus means some things, we talked about a lot of this in the Sermon on the Mount series, right? That, man, if you love Jesus, this has implications. And the same thing is as we come to the Lord, as we'll see these two different characters today intentionally juxtaposed, both Simon and Philip, and how they approach the Lord differently. And how we're going to say probably, hey, there's, there's one that seems to rise up as the right way that we should be pursuing Christ. And for the right motives and the right reasons, the right things that are meant to shape us and take us then to the city, right? That, that if we're just so bankrupt internally that we cannot give away what we are not receiving. And I think oftentimes the church, we don't think or we don't even try and pursue God to receive much from his word, from his presence. And so going out and sharing and being on mission sounds crazy because we can't give away what we don't have. And so I'm hoping today is an opportunity for us to just, okay, let's take a moment, let's step aside of just this talk about go, 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 serve, 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 bless, 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 and say, man, but what's, what's happening in here? How are we pursuing 
Jesus in light of how he's pursuing us, okay? So three weeks ago, Anthony gave this illustration that I'm going to use again because I thought it was super helpful, but he talked about in any given relationship, everything is hunky-dory until your first fight. Right, like anyone's ever had a girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, um, it, you know, every, it's like, man, this is this is perfect. Um, they're perfect, and then you have a fight, and then you're like, okay, what's going to happen now? Like, who's that person post fight? What's the relationship look like post fight? And last week we saw what happens when a relationship, uh, or we see the relationship rather take their first big loss. Last week uh, we see our first martyr. His name is Stephen. Stephen was, was kind of one of the main leaders amongst this early church crowd serving and loving widows in the community. And then he goes before this entire council and he preaches this beautiful sermon and then is, is murdered, is stoned to death. And the church now has their first martyr. And so we get to see today, well, what happens to the church when they lose their first guy? Like when, when they have this first big loss, like if anyone, just by a show of hands, I'm curious, how many people watch The Walking Dead? Okay. Yeah, you can be, who's that back there? Oh, it's Anthony. It's Anthony G, Pastor Anthony. Um, so I don't, because I'm a Christian. But for the rest of you sinners, uh, I'm just kidding. I really like that show. And what's beautiful about the show is, um, as sad as it sounds, they, 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 they'll kill off anybody, right? Uh, and if you go back to the first season, and I recently rewatched the first few seasons to catch up for this next season, right, just to kind of get my mind wrapped around where we're going. And I remember you get so tied in with this, this little group, and you're like, okay, what's going to happen to this group? And you're watching it unfold. And then they have that first big death. And I think it's different for different people, right? But they have that first big death, and the question naturally arises, well, what's going to happen to the group dynamic now? Are they going to continue to try and pursue the mission that they've been going for? Or is this death going to be so catastrophic that it's going to push them the other direction? They're going to shrink back and maybe they're just going to huddle in, right? So what is going to happen to the church we get to see today? Phenomenal little piece of history that we get to be part of. Now, um, before, last thing before we jump into the text. A lot of this text is going to be about, again, the juxtaposition between Simon and Philip, all centered around this idea of power all centered around this idea of, of like kingdom status, kingdom power, kingdom wealth, and what's most important in life. Because the reality is, is we're going to find this guy, Simon, he's, he's all about his own power. He's all about achievement and his own thing. And, and that's going to be very opposite to we see Philip saying, no, I'm going to pursue God's power, God's kingdom, instead of my own. Okay. And we look across the cultural landscape today, and I don't think that this is a... Strange thing. Is there a ringing? Am I, am I the only one hearing that? I am. All right, cool. Never mind. So much of this culture you and I grow up in is about a pursuit of wealth and power. At every level, you're told that as you grow up, that you're the center of the universe to pursue the things that will be best for you. Better put, it's a pursuit of power. See, that if you hold this power, if you have this power, then certainly then you can wield it for your benefit in any context, whether it be in school, whether it be in your job, in your family, right? That this type of pursuit of self lifts you up to a point where you get what you want. You have power. And so much of the world is going to continue to do this. And we perpetuate this lie oftentimes in church as well. And I have to say, I think it's the antithesis to the gospel. Now, I grew up in the South, and the church in the South is plagued by this. And I, and I, I didn't even go to church, 
but I saw it all the time when there would be, we'd be sitting there and there'd be a commercial on the television of a pastor flaunting his $3,000 suit standing next to his Bentley in front of his home that his church paid for and the whole church loved it because they were told that as more powerful as he gets, the more powerful you get. That as the pastor is blessed and the church is going to bless you, or maybe you've heard this one in different churches, or you've just heard this lie, that hey, if you sow enough money into this, you will reap sevenfold, or you'll, you'll reap twice as much, or God will bless you in abundance if you do this, this, and this. That is all a lie from the pit of hell. But it's the exact thing that we're going to find Simon pursue here in juxtaposition of our friend Philip. And I think what often happens as we look at this story, I want to give you this last nugget on the front end, is we end this story and we think, well, thank God I'm Philip. Like, thank God I'm the righteous one. Like, thank God I identify with that guy. I would never do that. And I would say that if you took a deep analysis of your life and heart, that just wouldn't be all that true. That we often make decisions that put ourselves predominantly at the center and leave God on the sidelines with the other people that we're called to serve. So all of that we bring into the text. Let's go. Verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them to the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. So this kind of sets a little bit of the context of the story just here in the first few verses before we get into kind of Simon and Philip and the narrative that puts them against each other. But here's what we got. We have persecution rampant, people scattered, and preaching continuing. So persecution has now ramped up. Like up to this point, it was like, man, they, they don't like us, they kind of hate us, they're coming after us. But now we see that this guy Saul is scaling up his persecution. His hatred of the Christian faith and church is exploding, and he's going house to house, door to door, and pulling people from their homes, dragging them to a place they did not want to be. Now, that sounds kind of crazy, but let's just remember that this is not too different from what we've heard about just 70 years ago in Nazi Germany, right? So you have guys going door to door, knocking, saying, hey, are you this? Yes? Come with me, dragging them, putting them onto trains into concentration camps. This is not that different. Think about the fear that must exist inside the church, Right? Like the fear, okay, so you're, you're sitting at home with your family and you hear this group. You hear Saul and his men coming down, knocking on your neighbor's door, then your door, and the next. The fear that must reside in the church in that moment. It sounds like a fear that would shut me up for sure. Like it sounds like a fear that would probably have me shrink back and say, I, I don't know how important this thing is to me anymore. Now, is that what's going to happen to the church? 
Because no, here's what it says. It says then that what Saul did is he took the people out in the midst of potentially this deep fear and then he scatters them across the region. And so if you remember Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, this beautiful community that had been formed, right? All these people were just living of one accord, sharing resource, probably joyful because they had each other and they had Jesus. And then now they're sent away, oftentimes now in much smaller pockets, sometimes by themselves. And you just wonder, is this still going to stick? So you don't have your community, you're worried for your life, you've heard about Stephen who's already been killed, what would you do? I asked myself that question this week as I began to think through the heavy persecution I experience in my life today. Wait a minute. Is, is, is you know, the barista worrying what, uh, or me worrying what the barista might think if I tell him that Jesus loves him really persecution? Is, is, my, is my, my friend, is, is my roommate thinking I'm one of those wackos who believe that Jesus, this guy, rose from the dead and is the answer for salvation in this world? That person thinking I'm crazy. Is that, is that really persecution? And I began to just try and run through all these things in my life. And I'm not trying to say that people in this room do not experience hardship because that is so far from the truth. I know so many of your stories. I'm not talking about your hardship or your pain. I'm talking about your persecution and I wonder, when I look at the state of the church, not just, honestly, and I'm part of it, right? This is an indictment on me. And I say, wait a minute, like, if we're going to see what's getting ready to happen, because the church does not shrink back, they do not hide, in fact, they get louder, and they proclaim more, and they push into culture more, and they bless more, at far more peril. And I say, what is going? What have I missed? And I think what I've missed is that this whole time I get so stuck in building my own power, my own kingdom, my own status, my own provision, my own security, my own hope, my own desires, instead of aligning myself with what we see Philip align himself with, and that is only what Christ has done. So this is an indictment in many ways on myself, and if you're here with me, maybe there's an amen, right? Maybe, maybe you're like, ah, yeah. And if so, listen, the church, because the fact that the Spirit resides in us, cannot then do nothing about it. Because I, I, I guess we, I could just read this text and I could just say, well, yeah, I shrink back. Oh, well, I'll try harder. Or, can fall in love more with Jesus today. I can believe more in what he's done. I can ask and pray that the God of the universe who made you and made me will change this wretched heart into something beautiful constantly. That then I could be of always service to him. Okay. So that is again my prayer for us. And I can only imagine how much this must have driven Saul crazy. So Saul just killed their guy. He's like, hey, we're going to take you out. He's now ravaging the church. And we see this last P, right, is that the preaching continues. That Philip goes to the world and the rest of the church as now they're scattered. As we've fulfilled the third part of Acts 1-8, the gospel is going to the world just like Jesus said. Saul could do nothing about it. There is no persecution that exists in the world that can thwart the mission of God. So why do we get so nervous and fearful? This must have driven Saul crazy, just this relentless pursuit of the church. 
Let's keep going, verse 9. But, which is always telling, right? It ends, there was much joy in the city, but no more joy. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. So just, just think for a moment. Let's touch on this. How many times right, we, we do things and the way we act and the, what, what we don't do and what we do, right, is just that the people around would begin to think, well, that guy's, that guy's all right. That guy's all right. That, that gal's all right. You know, and not just all right. Just, just, that, that person's great. I mean, that person's funny. That person's awesome. That, and, and whatever adjective that just tickles you, they're like, man, I would love if people thought this about me. How much of your life is crafted around them saying that about you? How much of your image is based on this? And by this, I mean other people. This, this is the pursuit of power that is in Simon. Let's continue. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So, so you get this first character, you get Simon and what's going on in his life, and he's just doing it for himself. Look at me, look at me, wowing the crowds, okay? And then this guy, Philip, shows up to the same area, and he starts doing even more amazing things, right? Like, just, just, true, like just stepping in. And so, man, imagine just the pride that could have welled up in Philip to be like, hey, that was your main dude, now look at me, look what I can do, now anoint me as your guy, I want people to say about me that, that I am the power of God here in this place. Again, maybe that's not that is the thing, the, you know, the characteristic that you're looking for is I don't want to be, maybe whatever it is, that's where you're filling in. So these two guys intentionally juxtaposed against one another. You have Simon acting a fool. You got Philip acting like Christ, which is great. And this is not the first time in the, in this, in this, in the book of Acts that Luke has done this. If you look even to just uh, last, uh, what was it, like a month ago, where we were juxtaposing, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the Ananias and Sapphira, I, could, I forgot their names this morning, but Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas. And we said, well, man, what's going on with these two stories? These intentionally pushed against one another to say, where should we line up? Right? And then we talked about last week, right? Uh, are you the Sanhedrin or are you Stephen? And, and which one? Again, these two groups constantly being pushed back and forth. And I think that's intentional for us. As we read and study to say and, and look and say, man, like, do I want Christ or do I want the world? Like, like which, which of these two things, if, if you're here and you're a Christian, which of these two will shape your narrative? Jesus or the world? These are the two options. And if it's not Jesus, it's the world. That's what the Bible gives us. And so again, we get this, this next kind of story and then this trilogy of juxtapositions in Simon and in Philip, right? Simon looks the part, but he's doing it for his own glory. Philip looks the part, but it's all for God's glory. And I, I long to, to surely look the part, but all for him. But I, I, I got to start letting go of some of this power grab stuff, some of this influence grab stuff. Some of this image grab stuff. 
because it's all the antithesis to the pursuit of Christ. It's not about us. It's about him and his kingdom. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, things are going to get a little tricky here for just a moment, okay? Because we have to take a, a short, uh, maybe five minutes to talk about a theology issue that arises here in this text. I'm going to get to it in just a second. But here, let me give you a little recap, a little narrative. So uh, what goes on is Philip's here, what's going on, the apostles here, what's going on over in Samaria. So they go to check out. They hear there's some people that are starting to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And so they come and say, they want to observe this and see this. And it says that they come in and they baptize them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So this means right, that the Holy Spirit had not fallen and come upon those believers at that point. Now, here's why this raises up a bit of a debate in the theology world that maybe some of you care about, maybe some of you don't, okay? And if you don't care about it, um, I don't know, let's pray or something right now. So what often gets brought up in this text and is the main text to defend a position that says that there is a second baptism, right? That there's two baptisms. There's the first baptism where, where you get saved, essentially, right? So let's set aside, and when I say this, let's set aside the whole water baptism thing we talked about. That is an outward action. I'm talking about the work of God in our heart. So oftentimes there's these two different baptisms. There's this separate, there's the first baptism where Jesus comes and in that moment the Holy Spirit indwells you. But then some people would say, no, there's this second baptism that exists where Jesus comes, right, and, he, uh, and, and you're just saved. But then when people lay hands or through some other thing, right, there is a second baptism where the Holy Spirit then comes and falls upon you. Oftentimes, this is accompanied with the speaking of tongues, okay? Now, there is a biblical spectrum that exists between these two, okay? And different Christians fall somewhere along that path. Now... I don't think, now hear, hear me, we have a position here at the church that I'm going to share. It's the same as my personal position. I do not think that if you disagree with me on this specific position, that means you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that, okay? I mean, you, you do you in that, okay? And if you want to sit down and talk about it more, let's sit down and talk about it more. This is not a salvific salvation issue, but it's an issue that we get confronted in the text, and it's one that people often ask about, and so let's talk about it. Our position here at the church that there is only one baptism, that there is not a second baptism that in which the Holy Spirit then comes upon you. We believe that because we think contextually that there's something else going on here which shows that to be true, okay? And then when we look at scriptures outside of this one, although this text looks somewhat peculiar, uh, we would say that they more point towards a single baptism that when you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and indwells you and he is with you that day until the day you die, okay? So here's why we think contextually this is not what's, ha what, that what's happening is it's just this one baptism thing. You see, a big issue within the church, the early church was division because what they were starting to do was something that was unprecedented. They were trying to take a ragtag bunch of random, different ethnicity, different background, different socioeconomic, different skin color, different, 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 and throw them all into one family and say, get along perfectly. 
That's what they're saying. Who's ever had Thanksgiving that didn't go that way, right? And these are people you grew up with that know you. So imagine, no, everyone from different backgrounds, thoughts, all sorts of feelings, thought, I mean, listen, if you look at some of the histories and the way that they align with one another, you should not be friends with these people, but because of the gospel, it was calling them to unity. So what you had when these 12 apostles show up to Samaria is you had 12 Jews show up to Samaria. And they were about to see a whole bunch of non-Jews that were claiming to be part of the family and saying, hey, no, we're, we're, we're in too. We're part of this too, right? And so here's, here's what we think the text is pointing to is God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty said, you know what, I'm going to send the apostles because I mean, if they don't go and see this, my guess is they'll never believe it. That, that if they just kind of showed up and this, and this group is like, oh, no, 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 we got the spirit now, we're good. My thought is, and what most commentators would point to, is, is that they would have just rejected that outright and said, no, you're not part of the family of God. Because there was such this proclivity to be nervous about the vision. So God, again, in his wisdom, sends the 12 that they would impart and be there as the Holy Spirit comes to prove once again that God's family has no border. It has no division. It has no broken peace. No, no, no. We are one and whole regardless of who you are, where you're from, what you look like, and what you do. Period. Now, knowing that this would have been something that would be fearful for the early church, God, again, in his wisdom, says, no, man, you guys go and see for yourself what I'm about to do. And he's going to do it again in Acts chapter 17. And so you don't need to turn there because we're going to preach there again. But the same thing happens over again. So that is the number one reason why we think this text is pointing to one baptism and not multiple baptisms. Again, if you believe otherwise, you're still a Christian, don't freak out. We can still be friends, okay? Um, the, only, the last reason I'll bring in here, we believe that the book of Acts, and we've talked about this before even in chapter one as we we're just trying to set the stage for this, the book of Acts is descriptive and not prescriptive at all times, right? That what you see here is a narrative. It's a story. It's saying, hey, this is what happened to the early church. It's not saying everything that happens here is exactly how you should go and do it. Because even if that were true and we wanted to receive the Holy Spirit, uh uh-oh, let's hope one of the apostles gets resurrected to come and lay hands on me. Or some other leader. Or et cetera, et cetera. I can speak for Anthony and I together. We both speak in tongues. Neither of us had hands laid on us when that happened. So if it's completely prescriptive, there's some holes in the narrative there. Because if it's completely prescriptive, I actually don't speak in tongues, which I don't know, maybe that's true, I don't think so, but um, I should have had people come and leaders lay hands on me, but that is not what happened. God dispenses gifts as he dispenses gifts. And we put way too much emphasis on some of them to mean way too much about who you are in Jesus. And that's just false. Who you are in Jesus is rooted in the fact that he gave up his life for you and rose from the dead that you would be a new creation. Okay. So that's what we believe, that what's happening here is God is trying to continually unify his church, to make them one, to let them know that nothing can break them. Why? Because notice the context of the moment. They had just been scattered about. Saul was breaking them apart. This was a time where things could have gone south, and they do not because God reinforces his unity through the presence of his spirit that all could see we are one. That's what we think. I love you no matter what you believe.
but you're wrong. <laughs> Just kidding, but really. Just kidding. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power. He gave them money, right? Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Let me be you, okay? But Peter said to them, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither parts nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Dang! Like, this is just, he's laying it on heavy. Listen up, Simon. You think you can just buy God? Like you, you think you can earn God? You think you can just throw me some money and then all of a sudden God's going to do this? No, 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 you're missing it. In fact, no, you're not just missing it. Your heart is full of wickedness, deceit, and iniquity. Now, I wonder if, as, <laughs> as he says, uh, uh, if possible that this would be forgiven you, I wonder if he's thinking of Ananias and Sapphira. And if you, if you weren't here for that story, right, these people struck down because they completely, in their hearts, followed Satan, disobeyed God, right? So I just wonder if he's like, man, I don't know, dude, because when we're done here, he might just strike you down dead right now because that's not that crazy in our world right now. And by our world, I mean their world, not, I mean, I don't know anyone that's happened to here, right? But in, in their world, not wild. So I wonder if he's like, listen, man, you better be careful because this might be the last breath you breathe. Because your heart is full of wickedness and iniquity. You can't buy God, Simon. That's not the way this works. You've missed everything that we preached. You focused on the miracle instead of the miracle maker. Right? You, you, you're, you're fixed on the wonder instead of the wonderer. Right? You're, you're fixed on the, the one who gives the signs rather, or on the signs rather than the one who gives the signs. You see, no, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus and it's about Jesus. And so for us today, listen, it's not about your talents, your gifts, what you have, what you can give to the world, what you can give to your spouse, friend, neighbor, whatever. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about your external stuff. It's about the internal reality that Christ has done a work in your life, Christian. And until we start depending on that, Vince, until I start depending on that, listen, the rest of this is going to be astronomically more difficult because my mind and my heart are in the wrong place. So, what do we do? Like, what, what is the next step? What is the pursuit here? And gosh, I, we're running, I'm going to try and wrap this up. This power thing this power grab of our world, this focus on the external stuff, it's something that is destroying the witness and the mission of the church. Not just individually, but corporately as well. There's a book that we're reading as a staff right now, and I highly recommend it. And uh, we'll actually send that out as part of the recap. And I, I just, It's called The Way of the Dragon versus The Way of the Lamb. And it talks about these, again, another juxtaposition about kind of the way of the, way of the dragon being the way of Satan and the way of the lamb being the way of Jesus and, and, and how we pursue power in the midst of those two power dynamics. And what they did is these two authors, they said, well, we're in our mid, mid to late 30s. What business do we have writing a book about this long-term sustainable pursuit of God's kingdom and God's power? And they said, you know what we're going to do? Uh, we're instead going to go find six 
70 year old or 70 year old or olders that we've seen walk this out well and we're going to uh, just ask them and interview them and ask them questions and I want to share a handful of quotes here that I just thought were so good and so encouraging for my soul um, as I as I prayed over our church and hoped for our church and this first one's from J.I. Packer if you don't know him, amazing theologian, author, you should check out some of his stuff. But anyway, he says that the Achilles heel of, their ch- of the church is their desire to be special. And I was like, dang it. Because we, I mean, we've, I've probably asked that to my staff. Hey, guys, what makes us special? You know, and Packer's just having a heart attack as I say it, I think, you know. That the Achilles heel, the thing that will tear us down, that will not allow us to walk in the mission of God is our pursuit to be special our pursuit to be something more and grand and great when our entire job is to point to the one who is grand and great and nothing to do with us, okay? Another one, he's from James Houston. This guy started, if you don't know, if you've ever heard of Regent Seminary, started Regent Seminary. If you've ever heard of Henry Nouwen, really, I mean, great author. This guy was Henry Nouwen's discipler. He said, if we over-leverage our strengths, talents, in our ministry, we are functionally practicing atheism, right? That, that if, you, if you're just like, okay, and it can be in anything, that if you're like, it has to be about me and my gifts and my talents and my powers and what I'm good at, and if you take me out of the equation, this all goes to nothing, you are practicing functionally atheism because then all of a sudden God isn't on the throne, you're on the throne, and when you come off, the kingdom crumbles. But if Jesus is on the throne, it does not matter about your talent, gifting, whatever you bring to the table, because Jesus will rule and his mission will continue. Right? Man, that one, that one hit home. This other one is uh, from Tim Keller, and this is actually from a different article. And he's just talking about powers from a different book that I'm reading with some of my guys. And it's another amazing book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And it's like literally like 50 pages is just, I mean, like, this is heresy, so I, I'm joking, but if we could fold it into the Bible somewhere, it would be amazing. Like, it's that good, and I really mean you should read it. Like, read this book. It will convict your heart about how you pursue you over you pursue Jesus. And he was talking about talk, thinking through how do, you, how do you, like, remedy some of this pursuit of power, and he says, you know what? You need to start caring for others' wins instead of your own. I was like, dang, dude. So I know, like, think about this. Like, I know, so we do this moment right before we jump in the sermon. We pray for another church in town. And we, and we listen, we believe that. We, we wholeheartedly believe that God will use his whole church to reach this city. But I will not lie that, that every once in a while, right, the sin creeps in and says, no, but I want my church to be the best one. Right, like, like at the end of the day, like, you know, it's like I want us all to reach him, but I want us to reach more. I, I, I want us to, I want all the churches to grow, but I want us to grow the most. And I have, listen, I have, I'm like, what are you thinking? Like this, this will destroy us. What does it look like for me, though, to say, you know what? Like, actually, we got some friends in town or, that are visiting from a new church plant called Urban Hope. And we actually talked about them when we were uh, at the Orpheum before. And I've gotten to know their, 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 their staff and some of their pastors really well. And they're incredible people. What would it look like for me to care for y'all to just be, just blow up, right? 80,000 person church because the whole city is Christian and it's all, God uses them and we just kind of just hang out and we do our thing here and flag high. That should not change anything in my soul, but I lie that it does. Because I do not pursue Jesus as I should and I worry about my kingdom instead of his. And Lord, help me. Lord, help me in that. 
And that happens on everyone, in everyone's life. Like if you don't run a church, it's something, right? It's your business, it's your work, it's, it's you, you as a husband, you as a spouse, whatever those things you're identifying in, right? They will eat you up and they will eat up the people around you because we're seeking the wrong power, okay? Um, okay, last text, last, last passage, let's go. Verse 24, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken to the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And here's where we're going to land. I find this incredibly sad that at the end of the story, you would hope then that Simon in the midst of that would be convicted and say, you know what, you're right. I need Jesus. I don't need this stuff. That, that stuff is it's tertiary. It's secondary. It's unnecessary for me. I need Jesus. Instead, what does he do? He says to Philip, hey man, can you help me out? See, he doesn't, he doesn't go to Jesus. He just appeals to the next thing that he thinks will get him there. That isn't Jesus. Now, specifically, there's some of you, you come to church and you do the Christian thing because someone else near you does the Christian thing. Stop that. Figure out where you stand with Jesus. Like, ask, seek. That doesn't mean, hey, don't keep get coming to stuff where you can learn and grow, but don't use the person next to you as your little Jesus crutch. Pursue Jesus yourself because what he accomplished at the cross is a veil was torn and access to him is now unlimited. You don't need to go through anybody else. You don't need to do anything. Just go talk to Jesus. He's here today. Talk to Jesus if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're hearing all this stuff and I, I don't know what you're thinking. I remember sitting in your seat before I got saved and thinking like, what is this dude talking about? And then I talked to Jesus. I went to the main guy. I talked to the head honcho and I said, what's going on here, buddy? And he said, I love you. And he said, I want you. And he said, you're a mess and you don't even know it. And I looked at my life and I said, you're wrong, man. My life is good, man. I did not know what was going on truly in here, that I was all about pursuing me, my kingdom, my power, and my influence. And I was living in a nonstop reality of insecurity because my value was dependent on you guys and not on the one who has given all of it to me already. And so if you're here and not a Christian, listen, talk to Jesus today. Like, commune with him. We're going to be singing songs. There's prayer. Like, talk to Jesus. Ask him, what's going on here? And I know he's going to tell you, I love you. I don't want you. But you're a mess. So that's why I did what I did. And so listen, as we end here, church, all I'm asking, in the same way that we said, listen, are you the Sanhedrin or are you Stephen? Listen, we're neither. Like, we're, we're just us and the idea is not to try and become like either one of those. The desire is to become like Jesus. When we preached Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas, the idea wasn't, hey, be Ananias and Sapphira or Barnabas. It's no, pursue Jesus. Because that's why Barnabas, that's why Philip, that's why Stephen did what they did is because they loved Jesus. They knew Jesus. And the Holy Spirit was in their hearts. It was not anything else about them. We are woefully insignificant. And we are woefully replaceable. 
But Jesus gives us so much value and love that you guys are indeed special in him and beautiful and awesome and cherished. So let us be that people for this city. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I'm excited to sing and just worship you and celebrate you and thank you for who you are and what you've done. So Lord, would you just bless our time, keep us focused on your grace and your mercy and the hope that you provide. God, thank you for everything that we know about and everything we don't know about that you've done on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to be our advocate, that God, we would just, I don't know, do our best to just be yours and know that, God, you want us to be yours. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.